Yeah, I've been seeing this Doug Henwood article, um, MMT is not helping. And I so full disclosure, I made it like a page in and I had already written like six notes down and I was starting to get like have like like one of those rage panic attacks. So I stopped <laughs> reading it. I sent it to my friend who is not he's not as into he agrees with MMT, but he's like not as like into it as I am. Like he works on Wall Street, um, and he, oh. uh, yeah, he, he's an interesting fellow. Um, like he's on board. He's just not like going out and telling people about it. But I was like, I need you to read this article and tell me, like, does Henwood sound as if he's Milton Friedman, or is it just <laughs> like, is it just because I don't like this guy and I'm reading <laughs> it that way? And so he got back to me and he was like, I can't. Like this, he's he sounds just like an economic terrorist. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with second-year MMT activist and graduate student Jane Ball. Jane earned an undergraduate minor in international economics at a conservative business school during the heart of the Iraq War and the first George W. Bush administration. Jane enjoyed the philosophy, theory, and history of economics, but strongly disliked the math and calculus. Because of the latter, they decided against pursuing an economics PhD. In early 2019, Jane discovered MMT in an episode of a podcast called Season of the Bitch. Jane then branched out to MMT podcast and Money on the Left, and into academic papers by Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton. Only then did Jane realize that it wasn't their understanding of mainstream economics and its math that was faulty or lacking, but the economics itself that made no sense. After describing their journey to MMT, Jane then talks about the flaws of Marxism, not as it actually is, but as it is popularly understood. Jane says this is primarily due to supporters inappropriately accepting and attempting to work around mainstream assumptions instead of rejecting them outright. An example is the flawed belief that at its heart, money is a scarce commodity. This is despite Marx's own monetary theory of production, or MCM prime, which as I understand it, in turn implies chartalism and the state theory of money. The monetary theory of production and chartalism, which is supported by the overwhelming body of historical and anthropological evidence, is in direct contradiction to the ahistorical idea of barter, in which money is a commodity or a tangible and scarce thing. If money were indeed a commodity, then as Jane describes, it means that money is a purely economic phenomenon and is inherently separate from the political world, 
and therefore outside of direct human control. All that said, I have studied little to no Marxism, so obviously don't listen to me. In part two, Jane and I discuss two of their academic style posts. The first documents studies that demonstrate the benefits of existing UBI-like programs, including the $5,000 a year paid to every Alaskan citizen by a fossil fuel company. The regular payment is clearly beneficial to its recipients, with the cruel irony being that the payments are made by companies which are viciously predatory to those very same recipients in the long run. The second is a fascinating post documenting how racist zoning has been official United States government policy starting soon after the Russian Revolution. These policies were a deliberate effort by government to prevent a similar kind of popular uprising. This was done primarily and essentially by dangling a nice home in the faces of white people and by keeping black and brown people out via redlining and discriminatory ordinances. So not only was this country built long ago on the backs and with the blood of black and brown people, that virulent racism continues today in active policy all around the country. A couple of notes before we get started. First, Jane is a voracious reader. Many of the books and authors they mentioned are listed in the show notes. Second, I mentioned how even the poorest countries can distribute their resources equally. I have since learned that there are many complications related to this, centering around the financial sovereignty of developing nations and how they are deliberately sabotaged and coerced by more powerful nations. I am still learning. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now on to my conversation with Jane Ball. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Enjoy. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, as I said, I, for some reason, up until the moment you told me that you lived on the East Coast, I was convinced that you lived in England. I just never bothered to look at your profile, I guess. I don't know. I mean, um, I, like, I don't think my profile would have made it any... I, aside from it saying that I live in Medford. Said, yeah, yeah, it says it says something, but it, but I, whatever it was, I never noticed it. And yeah. For some reason, I was just convinced that you were from England. I have no idea why. Uh, that's I think that's it makes sense based off a lot of the like the pictures that I share. I share I reblog a lot of British medievalist stuff, um, so I I think that makes sense that I, I would people would think I might be from England. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, just to, just to share a random story that you reminded me of with your with your job, and then we'll then we'll you know sort of officially get started uh, regarding get taking control of people's computers. 
Um, you know, that's, that's a popular way of scamming people. Mm-hmm. So I got a call recently and I actually recorded, I actually recorded the whole thing. So I got a message saying, you know, the, your Apple ID has been, you know, compromised, please call us so we can, you know, help you whatever. Or, and so I, I, I called, I was curious of how it was going to go. And I recorded and I re- actually got, they left a message. So I got the message too. Uh, you know, the recording of the original message. Right. And, you know, they said, have you used your Apple ID in Mexico or something like that? And I was like, nope. And they said, well, then there's, it's been compromised. And, and I knew obviously, you know, how could they possibly know this? And, but I was just like, you know, letting them go on. And they said, you know, can you please go to your computer and go to your browser? And, and they actually, you know, they detected based on the, you know, the bottom left button is control on Mac and windows. Mm-hmm. And they said, what's the button next to that? And that's their way of determining which, if it's Mac or Windows, so they can right. continue their instructions and which, you know. And so they had me go to Google and they had to me go to some, I forget the website, but it was a website of allowing someone to take control of your computer. And I was like, you know, so you want me to give you control of your computer? And he said, yes, we must help. You know, we need to we need to get these uh, viruses or whatever off of your computer. I was like, you said my Apple ID is compromised. So what's my Apple ID? <laughs> And they said, you know, it's it's your it's your you know the email that you used, and I was like, yeah, I know it's my email. You called me telling me my Apple ID is compromised. So what is it? And they hung up. Yeah. And my and my um and my my ten year old was there, which was really cool because I was recording it, and like so he asked the question like I envision the audience, you know, the listener asking, but I could answer it in a real not condescending, but I could answer it in a really basic way because a ten year old was asking me. <laughs> Um, you know, it was like, they were trying to trick me. They said that they, you know, it was just really, it was, it, it was a, I felt, I felt like, you know, I got them and, and like, I really captured it. So, yeah. Yes, sir. We have to connect with the secure Apple line to remove all the hacker from your older devices, sir. So you said that my, you said that my Apple, my what Apple, did you, say? you said you started this phone call by saying that my Apple ID was hacked, right? <clears throat> yes, I, I already show you your iPhone is hacked, so that's the reason we have to connect with the secure Apple line to remove all the hacker. Okay, so if you if my I, Apple ID was hacked, then what is my Apple ID? The regular email you use on your Apple device, that is your Apple ID. No, but you said that my Apple ID is hacked, so that means that you know what my Apple ID is, so what is it, please? just hung up on me. <sighs> so, your Apple ID was that? No, he has no idea what my Apple ID is. He was hoping that I would just believe him, and then I would give him control of my computer, and then he would take things from me. Do you think you believe him? Um, yeah, that's... Apple would never... Aside from the fact that Apple would never do that, just having any tech person be like, you let me log into your computer to help you with this would be like a literal nightmare. Yeah, of course, of course. Actually, we got caught with that once a long time ago. My wife, you know, unknowingly, my wife allowed that to happen. And I happened to just walk in the room and I just shut the computer. I just like pulled the plug. Like they got control of the computer, but it probably was maybe only 10 seconds at that point. Right. And I, I just I just yanked the plug and it just like instantaneously turned off. Um, so anyway, um, okay, Jane, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah. why don't you, uh, introduce yourself, 
uh, and say, you know, you're thinking before you heard of NMT. Yeah. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Jane Ball. So I, yeah, my introduction to economics, I guess, was a long time ago um, in my undergrad. And I had a minor in economics, uh, went to like a conservative business school during the first Bush administration, um, not not first the first W administration. So during the Iraq war, everything was very, um, it was definitely very conservative economics that was taught there. Even the more liberal people were, it was still very, now that I look back at it, just like very neoliberal heavy. And a lot of things, like I was really interested in it, but it didn't really make sense. And I had this one class that was like a like a high level macroeconomics and I don't remember exactly what he taught us but I'm pretty sure it was like a lot of the same um he was someone who had been blacklisted by the um state department in the late 40s early 50s so it was oh. yeah so he had a very a very different way of looking at how the economy worked and that was really where like I like heard about uh, the velocity of money there. So I've been trying to find my notes on that class, but that was kind of like the thing that got me being like, this doesn't like a lot of the stuff that we're learning doesn't really make sense. It doesn't like it's, but I thought I was just missing something. And then I had another class um, that kind of went through a lot of the philosophy of economics, which is really where I'm, I'm not good at the calculus stuff. I'm better at the philosophy um, and like the theory of it. But we went through Adam Smith, but we focused less on wealth of nations and more on theory of moral sentiments. And from like what he envisioned in both of those works is very different than what we have now. And that's not like surprising, but that was that kind of got me trying to like wanting to understand more. But like things didn't make sense really until. I first, uh, I think I listened to like a, like several podcasts on on MMT, and then it was just like it, everything. I was like, oh, the stuff that doesn't make sense is because it's doesn't make all, sense. Yeah, it doesn't make. It's not like it's all. It, it just it's tautological. It's not. It's not real. And that like that was kind of like once I understood that we were just learning like a certain like circular logic about itself and not necessarily a holistic view of how the economy works in and how it, a lot of it how institutions play into that once i like that really i mean changed how i look at everything um and specifically the idea that the the whole taxation doesn't pay for spending like that blew my mind and so that was kind of what in, like introduced me to MMT. And then I once I kind of fixated on something, I so I read a bunch of papers by Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton. I listened to as many podcasts as I could, um, started talking about it at school, uh, trying to get people to have like a better sense of why I was excited about it and like how it plays into a lot of the stuff that we were trying to learn um so that's kind of it's kind of how i arrived at this spot 
Well, okay. So, well, first of all, what year did you discover MMT and those podcasts and whatever? I mean, the podcasts aren't that old of a phenomenon. Yeah, it was last year. Like last, last year. Yeah, last April. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I I I had it in my head that that you were rather experienced or not you were you seem to know what you're talking about. Well, thank you. I mean, it's not like I know it's not like I've known you for a while, but but you seem to um that that it's only been a year is is shocking actually. But there is a huge gap between the Iraq war and last year. So yeah. how what's that transition? What what happened, you know? Yeah, I mean, so part of it, like between 2009 and 2000, when I was at Apple, I focused mostly on just that. So I wasn't really thinking about economics that much. And at, at one point, I kind of just gave up on the whole I'm interested in policy thing. Um, I just, it, it, I was discouraged. There was a lot of, there was a lot that was discouraging about 2010 and to kind of how like the first, uh, two years of the Obama administration ended up. Uh, so I kind of, for a little while, I checked out. Um, and then, I, it honestly, not this is, isn't necessarily related, but I started to get back in, um, like, passionate about things again through Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Um, as I was, like, as I was doing, like, getting, like, reading through that and, like, understanding, like, more feminist theory, then that kind of helped me get to the point where I was like, all right, like, what do I want to do? How do I want to contribute to this? And like a much more material thing, I was in like a managerial position at Apple and it was difficult because the people that I was working with that I was like the manager of were my friends. I had worked with them for five years before getting promoted, but we needed people to not call out because that I was running the, the genius bar. So like that would really mess up everyone's day. But like, I also like, these were my friends. I knew that they, like, I knew various health problems and the other managers were like, oh, like uh, these, these are bad people. And it's like, that really stood out to me. And I, they were just, I don't want to like paint them in a bad way. They were just frustrated about stuff as well, but like, I didn't want to be like that. So I, that was kind of where I was like, nah, managers kind of suck. So that <laughs> got me. I think reposition between that and the social justice stuff that kind of made me rethink everything that I basically already believed. And then 2016, the election obviously radicalized me as well. So there was, but there was a lot more social justice stuff in between. And then I got to economics. I don't re- I remember I was at work and I like I don't remember why I was thinking about it but I realized that the labor market is designed specifically to make people have to work in order to get be able to meet social reproductive needs and I didn't know those phrases at the time but like I realized like I realized that contradiction and it's like that there's no way that this can be a free market so that I think was kind of what refocused me on economics um reconnect this again to your manager friends that were not being very kind but still you know doing oh yeah that was more of a that was more of a personal thing where i I need i need to get out of this like sales environment and into something that 
matters to the world. And I, it's cause I can't like work isn't, it made me both things, I guess made me realize that how, what, it, what work is deemed as important is not necessarily important. And it's super easy to dehumanize people based off of what it seems important, even though like we just sold phones, like it wasn't like that's, we, it's not life or death for the most part. Mm-hmm. So it was like, that was frustrating to like have people take it that seriously where you're almost dehumanizing people. And then I, this was like probably a year or two later, I was thinking about just the labor market and that like people are realizing that people are forced and coerced into it. How can you be mad at them? if they're also sick and trying to take the time off that they need. So that's kind of like how the two thoughts connected, even though they were like very different. Um, well, and- I, I thought you were going where uh, that, that is how you sort of started to think about, you know, capital versus labor kind of uh, thing. No, that was more. Yeah. I mean, it, I've, I think I had already read Piketty at that point. So I think that that would have been how I was thinking about, and that's probably the through line was I had just finished reading Capital in the 21st Century and mm-hmm. was trying to make sense of everything and then like working off my past experiences with managers and how market economics is like per, like on the micro level is really like treats people poorly. And it was like that, but yeah. Well, I mean, actually, it makes me think of, you know, when you go into an Apple store as a customer, you know, you're treated basically like a friend, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. and, or when you call their their, their support, mm-hmm. like they make a big point of, I think, being overly friendly. That's like, I see that as, as a flaw. Like they, they try and identify with you to a fault. Yeah. Then there's the disconnect of okay, uh, you know, thanks for the warm cuddlies, but I need my problem solved, and you know, it's like the focus is too much on that. And I think it, it makes me think of there's there must be a lot of pressure on the workers in order to create that kind of an atmosphere for the customers. Yeah, um, yes and no. It depends on what the issue is, obviously, but. Um, Especially in person, online is a little bit weirder because I, I've noticed that too. Where you're writing them, it's there's a lot of friendliness. That's like, okay, can you just get to the point? In person, there's, it's not as unnatural. So it wasn't, it wasn't put on by most of like most people that like you talk to if you go in to buy something or like you go to get something fixed. um, That's not. There, people are like legitimately buying into like the importance of uh, making sure that your this stuff works, and they are excited to help people. But when I was there, they started really pushing just swapping out equipment as opposed to fixing it. So okay. that I, I think that would be why they are. There's probably more of a focus on making sure people are super friendly because. You're just, you're not fixing, you're replacing. Um, okay. Yeah. But, okay. yeah, it's weird online, I agree, because it's way too many extra words. Yeah. 
Um, uh, okay, okay. Um, so you have been you had an economics undergrad, is that right? Or uh, no, a minor, a minor use. Yeah, minor in international economics. Um, and international. I, wow. Yeah, it was because that as opposed to doing like micro stuff. Um, it, and I, there was a monetary policy class there, and it was the hardest class, so I didn't. I didn't have room for it, but a lot of the other stuff, I, I was more interested in um, international stuff when I was in college. I did model UN in high school, so I was very much in interested in international uh, relations and that sort of thing. But you have to, there's that, there's even less right out of um, undergrad for that. And over, I think one of the, things especially with like the social justice actions over the last 10 years that geared me more towards domestic stuff than international stuff okay i don't know if you follow john harvey at all but he just gave his uh an hour-long lecture with modern money australia on foreign exchange i think it was called what was it called it was called the uh exchange rate theory is it is horribly horrifically boring as it sounds um, and you know he's he's the reality of of exchange rate, and he was and you know he has uh, he wrote a book on it and a big or at least the first two chapters or something like that is all about how mainstream theory on foreign exchange or exchange rate or whatever the overall thing is called uh, is completely bogus. So you you were majored in that. So like, do you feel like did you have a real education or did you just learn all the wrong stuff um so i haven't i haven't listened to that lecture but i'm going to because <laughs> i was super into uh foreign exchange stuff when i was in it's been i mean it's been 15 years so i don't remember any of it um mm -hmm. but i was definitely interested in it and i love finding out about how all of that stuff is bogus so i will be checking that out thank you cool <laughs> Okay. Uh, you said one of your you said one of your professors was blacklisted. Does that mean that he was blacklisted for the right reasons? Like, uh, yeah, I believe he was a socialist. I think that that was the story. I don't know. So that is anecdotal. I don't know if that is true, but that was that was the story about um, him. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was definitely a heterodox uh, economist. Okay. All right. So last year you discovered MMT and then you, so, so review some, what were some of the books that you, or the papers or the things that you consumed after you um, discovered it? I, so I, the po podcasts were Money on the Left, the, I think it's MMT podcast mm -hmm. were the ones that I listened to the most. The, um, where I heard about it was from the season of the bitched podcast. Um, oh. and they, yeah, they did an episode on it and I was like, okay, modern, modern theory. Like I should probably understand what that is about. Um, and then I listened to it and was like, oh, this is, I need to, like, I need to learn more. So then I think I listened to the professor Kelton interview on money on the left. And then I read, I, I'm trying to think now I've read a bunch of things about the origin of money um, that I believe Randy Ray wrote and mm -hmm. Stephanie Kelton wrote, um, some of the older stuff. 
I tend to gravitate towards like history stuff, even with like economics. I it's it's less like okay, here how does the calculus work, but more like how like how did it get from point A to point C or whatever. So I I've as I was reading that a book another book that I had read Empire of Cotton by Sven Beckart. Okay. And it yeah, so that goes through the cotton industry from like 1500 to now um and it like tracks it across the world and a lot of it is about how the english were trying to they were trying to corner the market and figure out the best way of managing labor um and it's a whole i mean it's a 500 year enterprise um Hmm. but he at one point he explains and this is he explains how the British, like imperial agents, took control in in India, and it's also, I mean, it's kind of what they did 200 years before when they were enclosing throughout England. But they introduced, I mean, they changed property law. They introduced taxes, and then would pay into the economy to pay, like they would pay people to grow cotton for them. And that was how they would get the money to pay the taxes. So that was a very specific, in, very like depressing demonstration of how that, like this, the logic works. Mm-hmm. And so like I had, I had read that first, but then as I was reading through the origins of money, um, then it like, it really jumped out to me like, oh, this is like, here's an instance when the British use this to their advantage. And then I've read some of Christine Dasan's book mm. on the origin of money, which is I've read probably four or five chapters at this point. I go through, I read a bunch of different books at the at once and finish them over the course of a year. So, um, actually, you reminded me. Sam Levy said that he read uh, Randy Ray's entire first book, maybe it was the second book, the 1998 book, I believe, on his phone. Oh, yeah. I think I remember hearing. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I remember. I'll never forget. I don't know why. It was just like a little moment. That, uh, I think he was on MMT. Yeah, on MMT podcast where he said, uh, yeah, don't read on your phone, kids, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that um, stuck out to me, too. <laughs> yeah. Can you remember the first time you saw an MMT insight that switched it on for you? Uh, it was it was. It would have to be while I was reading that book, Understanding Modern Money, because I really didn't know anything about MMT before I read that. And I made the horrific mistake of reading it on my phone. Uh, mm. <laughs> don't read books on your phone, yeah. kids. Oh, God, your eyes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he talks about taxes. Not um, so you, you said that, that you prefer not math. You're... you're I don't exactly remember how you worded it, but basically you're not a math person, you're a non-math person. And it seems to me that that is a real handicap in mainstream economics. And that probably, I'm guessing that when you discovered MMT, that it probably was a relief because math is really not a significant requirement. At least uh, not, at, not at the first, you know, nowhere near the beginning of when you're first discovering it is, is that required. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was actually, I actually had a conversation with the department chair specifically about that. She was like, you know, you should go for your PhD um, in economics. You know, there's, there are some heterodox programs 
And I was like, I, I mean, I need a break from school, but also I'm not good at calculus and I don't know that I can sit through like micro classes again. And she's like, oh, if you don't know the calculus, like you're not like, it will be difficult to get in someplace because they really want being able to do your own calculus, like is a, is a benefit for a lot of the stuff that um, economists do. But yeah, it was right around the same time that I discovered MMT and it was like, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to know calculus. If there's calculus that I need to do, there's applications that will do it for me and I need to be able to interpret it and that's fine. But I don't necessarily need to be doing all of these cal like crazy calculus equations. So um, I presume that was a relief in a way. Oh yeah, absolutely. So and like empowering, um, also because she doesn't know anything about uh, macroeconomics. So I get to. I, it it ends up being a much more on the same level type of thing, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Uh, actually, John Harvey and Randy Ray both said that they were very good at math and that John Harvey said that he was, he got like the best grades in the class. And, but he had, but he, he told us, he told me a story that, that he was, he like got the best grades in the class for, for foreign exchange or something, whatever class he was in. And then he would go out into the world and he realized he would have, he has no answers to actual questions. Like when he's, when, if someone were to ask him, so who are our trading partners? He would say, I have no clue. And he's, then they would say, then they would ask him, well, what do we trade? And he's like, I don't know, X and Y, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, he, so he learned it really well and he got the best grade in the class, but you know, he didn't learn anything. And Randy Ray said as well that, that he could tell in, immediately that it was pointless and, you know, not realistic, but he really enjoyed it because it was so easy be, as long as you could do a little bit of math. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how, uh, gosh, where do I, where do I go from here? Uh, you said that you said you wanted to, um, you said you wanted to, I, I read your articles. I read your, uh, your, you have two posts, one on the UBI mm -hmm. and one on, uh, uh, land zoning, yes. zoning laws. Um, so why, why don't you pick a subject? So the, we had, you had the marks that you want to talk about. I did not, I have not done any reading today on it, although I, you know, have seen this come up quite a bit. Yeah. Why don't you pick and then we'll go that direction. Yeah. Um, let's start with the marks because that's the thing that I think that's been on my mind the most. It'll probably be the easiest. I think I can probably weave the other two in there, but I might get, okay. You might need to reel me in a little bit, no, um, but so yeah, I've been seeing this Doug Henwood article. Um, MMT is not helping, and I so full disclosure, I made it like a page in, and I had already written like six notes down, and I was starting to get like have like like one of those rage panic attacks. So I stopped <laughs> reading it. I sent it to my friend who is not he's not as into he agrees with mmt but he's like not as like into it as i am like he works on wall street um and he oh. uh, yeah he he's an interesting fellow um like he's on board he's just not like going out and telling people about it but i was like i need you to read this article and tell me like does henwood sound as if he's milton friedman or is it just <laughs> 
like, is it just because I don't like this guy and I'm reading uh-huh. it that way? And so he got back to me and he was like, I can't like this. He's, he sounds just like an economic terrorist. Um, <laughs> Whoa. And, okay. Yeah. Well, because so, when is, like, this? is this recent or is this, um, I mean, I, he wrote this article. I mean, it's been more than a year. Like, yeah, more. it's been, so I don't know. It's been popping up on my, uh, one of my Facebook feeds a lot lately. So I don't know if it's, something that's going around or just specifically going around like with this person that I'm friends with that I actually ended up talking to today to be like, your critiques aren't really like making sense, but I'm reading this and all of the things that he, like his arguments against MMT are the same things that you would, you would probably read in wall street journal. I mean, he, it's a very monetarist way of looking at like how money works on top of it. I mean, it's, I also just think it's a very disingenuous because he's not being truthful with everything. He's not being thorough with everything. Uh, how so much did he, did you notice that he actually cited actual words of MMT? Um, he was very, he cherry picked. He definitely, it wasn't, I only, I had to stop because it was, there were so many just assumptions that didn't really line up. Yeah, and actually, be... actually, I'll, let me say the I I have a there are three responses by one by Pavlina, one by Randy Ray, and one by uh, Rowan and I believe Nathan and uh, Scott Ferguson. I believe it is. Oh yeah, uh, to yeah. that to that piece. Yeah, I saw the um, I saw the Pavlina one, and I was going to I was going to read that after reading the. Henwood article, but I didn't get through the Hen- Henwood article, so I went outside and did yard work instead. Um, uh, uh, just to be just to be complete, Scott Ferguson, Nathan Tankis, Rowan Gray, and Ro- Raul Carrillo. Okay, and I noticed this a lot with Marxism in general. Is there is like too quickly to accept the assumptions of neoliberal economics as opposed to questioning the assumptions there seems to me i don't want to speak too broadly but i find a lot of people will argue the free market does exist but it's bad so we need to not have the free market and it's like that's not really the way and i think a lot of it comes down to just the way people view the roles of institutions but also i i was realizing there's a view of money as a commodity, but I don't think I would argue that it's a public utility. A commodity to me, like, so that sounds like it is separate from the political world. Um, it's a pure economic thing. But we know from MMT that markets are created by the government. They don't just necessarily, I mean, some things do, but these large overarching markets are like whatever the regulations are, those set the terms for the market. I actually Um, just heard a speech with David Graeber speaking at Google, where he says that markets uh, are substantially created as like markets were created around governments creating, uh, you know, military operations, which to me comes across as that's how you provision your military. You know, you create cities around that. Well, and so that's literally what happened. Um, I was like, I you um, sent me that tweet earlier. I'm reading the uh, Parenti book on uh, Hamilton, and I'm 
just finished the chapter on how he was like trying to provision the war. And that is, yeah, there was, that was the main driver of production during the um, war for independence. It was the British, the Americans and the French armies were all like strapped for resources. So they were creating new markets and like, yeah, and you can see that throughout history and it comes back to the suburbs to kind of like touch on the zoning thing there is i forget the author now but she writes about the military welfare state and one of the arguments is that most of the suburbs were built around military industrial complex jobs whether it was like directly so like my i'm from the boston area so we have like raytheon is had a building you know, like a mile, maybe less from my house. Hmm. And then when I've read about the growth of this area from the sixties, it's all, if it's not directly in tied into defense department agencies, it is academic stuff doing research for the defense department. And I mean, that's still happening now. I know there is a professor at Tufts that has a grant from the department of defense doing machine learning and, was able to buy like a really um, intense computer to do it because through this grant. So like that's a lot of the prosperity is of America is built around the military uh, driving these markets. Sure. Well, even the internet, I mean, the internet is, that's where that came from. Yep. Uh, you said before that uh, money was a commodity or uh, you said commodity versus utility. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I think, trying to get at like the political, like what does that mean politically as well as economically? And so like this isn't a full thought out um, necessarily argument yet, but I can, I'll run it by you. So it's, there's the law of dim- diminishing returns that states, you know, after a certain point, the, the ut- not the same utility the way that I'm using it, but like the utility of something drops off. So there's less of an incentive to accrue more, more of it. But that's not how money works. And if it was a commodity, like you would think that at a certain point, people would be like, I don't, I have too much money to do anything with. There's no reason for me to have this money. But that's, that isn't really how the ruling class behaves. So if it's not about having the money to spend or to use, like, why do they want the money? And this kind of like ties in to like Piketty with like when you, when you look at like the eight, 1980 and on taxes on the top percent earners have dr- dramatically dropped and their earnings have gone has gone up so it to me i'm thinking this is it's a political thing it's it's not about accruing money so that they can spend it on something or buy it it's about accruing money so that other the people who like most people don't have it they need to, you know, get go into debt, but it also, I mean, it helps them corner the political arena as well. And so, like, money as a utility—is it being privatized, which is, you know, what it is right now? Versus, is it something a utility like, you know, like energy or uh, like electricity, heat? Like, those are those are municipal utilities in a lot of cases, or they should be. You're um, saying money being privatized—is that what you meant? Well, yeah, yeah. So money, 
the privatization, I would say money creation is privatized through the, uh, in a lot of ways, or at least that's the story through the banks. The, this is the Charlotte the, story. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's also what they teach you in Orthodox economics too, is that like banks, cre- banks will create the money. It's not from the government giving money to the banks. It's the banks themselves creating, giving, giving out loans and then creating like, that's the story that we got in um, Orthodox economics. Right. But yeah, so viewing money as similar to electricity or heat or the internet is like, that's kind of the way that I'm looking at it. But then that's, there's like the top down aspect and then there's the bottom up aspect. Um, so like, how does it, how does it work on the lower at the more personal level. And so that's kind of where the zoning stuff ties in, um, but also participatory budgeting. But yeah, that anyways, that is, so the commodity versus utility thing. And I think part of it is people like that with the Marxists is they, for, they view it as the commodity. So it's all about, they don't think about it from the provisioning of government. Uh, And I think there's, there was another thread that I saw from, the person that you shared the tweet, so it's, I forget the, I'm pretty sure that I saw them having a back and forth with Nathan about, about money. And I, I, it was too long, so I didn't get into it, but they, there was just like a, there was a disconnect about how to create a central, about like abolishing money and having centralized production. And like it, I think that to, to me that speaks to viewing money strictly as a commodity, right. as opposed to like it is, it's you know it, it's a public utility um, that helps you know keep everything running, and it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily evil or good. It's how the money is created, who it's created for, who it serves, and how it is decided to be spent. Um, okay, so so why don't you bring this back to the uh, to to Marx and to there's um... there's just there isn't the questioning of how the economy actually works that I I don't see a lot of that coming from Marxists. I see that coming from um, other heterodox and, and not necessarily people that are lined up with MMT, but like they will in certain cases agree with. Um, but I it's there seems to be just as an assumption of monetarism embedded in the Marxist critiques that I've seen of MMT. And it's it's frustrating to combat that because you think that there would be some agreement with other people on the left about how, at least about how things don't work. But when you get these, what are essentially right-wing talking points from people on the left, you're like, how am I supposed to respond to this in a different way? It's so it, it it's frustrating. I mean, it's I mean, you know, it's I mean, you can only go so far into a fantasy world, you know. Right. I mean, M- MMT is in, is uh, institutionalist. Like I just like got my mind around what that really means as far as how that fits into MMT or how MMT implements that. MMT is, is institutionalist in that it makes a big point of understanding how our financial institutions work. 
-hmm. and it and it, everything that everything must be able to hook back to that and if it can't then it's invalid and mainstream economics does not do anything of the sort as i understand it and therefore it's built on a fantasy world yep i have a friend who is into or a friend of a friend who is into dreams like sort of analyzing dreams and there's mm -hmm. nothing there's you know totally nothing wrong with that you know they 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 analyze it like like as if it's a science right i don't buy it i don't buy into that i'm not interested in that but there's totally nothing wrong with them doing that as long as their conclusions are not used to implement policy right right and and mainstream economics is that is that's what it is, it is a fantasy world that is used to implement policy. Right. And that's where, you know, it, it, so it's like, I'm, 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 I, I'm, I'm going to be taking my first classes and I believe it's going to be, uh, you know, there's no MMT school near me. So I'm pr probably going to be taking a, a mainstream course uh, or maybe, you know, history of, of thought or whatever. Maybe there's right. something more generic, but I need, you need to learn the fantasy because that's who you're up against, you know. It's like right. if you want to, if you're if you're going to be heterodox, you have to learn what you're standing against reasonably. So basically, you have to learn both. You have to learn two two completely independent schools of right. economics if you're going to challenge mainstream. Um, I I sort of lost where I was going, but it's like you know you can only go so far down a fantasy world right. and keep your sanity, right? You know, so. Yeah, and I think that's and I so I in prepping for this and I didn't end up getting through it, but I started to um, I bought David Harvey's Capital Companion because I figured I'm not going to be able to read Capital like I just don't have the time for that, but I might oh, be a able companion to companion to Marx's Capital. Yeah, oh. um, yeah. So he kind of like goes through, um, and I was just going to read the chapter on money, but I think it's. It was very. It looked very important to read also the chapter on commodities before I got to money. So luckily, those were like the first two chapters. But I just didn't. I didn't have too much time to get into it. But the first thing, like one of the first things that he says is that Marx is sometimes talking about the way things should, the way that he thinks things should be. Sometimes he's talking about the way things actually are and sometimes he's talking about the way like mainstream economics thinks the the fantasy world um but he's not always clear when he's transitioning through like those different narratives okay. so a lot of people i think when he if he's talking about like capital in its perfect state i th i think what harvey was getting at is they'll argue that they will take that to me like okay this is this is it's not like this is what people are want it to be. It's like this is, and we have to work around it, as okay. opposed to like viewing, like looking at things as. And I, I mean, it comes down to um, like viewing history as a process, and like that's where the institutions are important. Change does happen gradually, and there are like instances where there's much more drastic change. But even when you have those, like something that's a catalyst, like. It's not. It's never something that just happened. There are always roots dating back decades, if not more, and it re reverberates, you know, for decades, if not more. 
that seems to be some of the issues that I have with mainstream Marxism. They just they take for granted certain things that capitalists take for granted that are not based in the actual historical processes that happened. Okay, so so what do you understand the relationship, I guess broadly speaking, between actual Marxism and MMT? Um, I I view Marxism more as a historic, like a way of analyzing history. So I've gotten two marks from other people. I haven't really read much Marx myself, but I've read a lot of like Sylvia Federici and um, Ellen Meskin, Meskins Wood. Um, and so like they talk about like the development of capitalism from like as like an agrarian thing in England. So for me, for me, it's like actually seeing the historical process as, and like looking for like the actual transitions from feudalism to modernity and where capitalism plays into that. MMT kind of goes along with that because it's all about institutions and like who has access to those institutions, what the property relations those institutions prop up are. Um, And like MMT is, and it's another material way of analyzing those institutions. And I think it works necessary. It can work with Marxism, but it's, it doesn't require Marxism. And obviously you're not, it's not like every Marxist is going to get to like the same analysis, but I think it, a lot of it comes down to other ideology about like how you view the economic sphere versus the political sphere and how they inter like interplay. And I think the Marxism that I've read and MMT argue that they're not separate spheres. They're the same thing. They just have different expressions. And so the economics of government spending is also about government policy and like the political and who the government spent gives money to, or like if you're using the pre-distribution framing from Fidel, it's, you know, who does the government pay, pay into? And that gives like, those are the people that have political power. And so that's, I think where the two interplay, but like I said, they're not necessarily, I don't think it's inevitable that the two will meet. Okay. I wonder, I, I, I think, what did, I think, I think Marx's MCM prime is effectively chartalism. I believe well, monetary theory of production, right? I, so that's what I'm going to, yeah, before you answer, before you answer the question, just, do you recommend that campaign? What was the, can you say the name of the, and the author oh, of the David Marx Harvey. Companion? Yeah. So it's David Harvey. Yeah. He is, he's the, um, he's going to be the best person. If you want to, if you want to know Marx, but don't want to read Marx, he's the person because he's been teaching. <laughs> That's the gateway without having to, I mean, I, yeah. I, I have a feeling that reading all Marx, you know, raw Marx is probably rough. Same with reading Keynes, like his, his, uh, the general theory, I, 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 yeah. I, it's rough going, I understand, but I believe there's a lot of like, like I'm, I'm going to read his autobiography or not his biography, his new biography and like sort of work my way towards the more intense. So yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that the, that this companion is probably in the same vein. Yeah. It's, um, it's made to be very accessible. Um, that's his point. And he's been teaching capital since like, like 1976 or something he started a study study group because no one 
like no one understood it and so that was how he was like all right well let's figure it out and so now he's like like the guy you go to um so one more time to say the name in the uh, david harvey and harvey it is yeah okay great so okay so uh you were going to answer something which was do you remember um about no i don't Oh, oh, oh yeah 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 as I understand him, all ma- three major schools of heterodox thought, which is institutionalism, Marxism, and uh, post-Keynesian, are monetary theory of production, which is Marx's MCM prime. And that implies chartalism, as I understand it. I, I mean, that's the thing, is that's kind of where I've been getting stumped, is I don't understand how I, the the fact that it's not like it's this Henwood article and the person that I um, was talking to, I, I said, you know, the, these are if you told me that you're not against neo-chartalism, but like these aren't neo-chartalists. It's not like different neo-chartalist critiques. It's like a neoliberal critique. Mm-hmm. Um, so to I haven't I don't know because I haven't read Marx, but that would, that to me makes sense. The way that like what I know about Marx and the way that he studied Adam Smith and just everything. And just what to me, yeah, he would come out with our chartalist view. So it's surprising to me that Marxists don't follow what seems to be true Marxism. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I believe that that's true. Uh, I believe I'm, I'm interpreting what, what uh, Randy Ray told me that all three of those schools, institutionalist Marxist and post Keynesian all ha- all believe or subscribe or whatever you call it to the monetary theory of production. The monetary theory of production is Marx's MCM prime. And that means if that's true, I, I'm going to trust them that it's true. Um, that, the labor theory of value, which is also Marxism, must somehow be compatible with the state theory of money. I am writing this down because I am going to ponder this. Actually, this. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna text you. Actually, I'll just text it right now. I, I just wrote. You know, I, I'm obviously have a lot to learn, but I, I'm, I right. feel like I've gotten a level deeper in my understanding of chartalism. I'm gonna send it to you right now. I'll put it yeah. in the show notes, which is. Uh, Chartalism. I wrote a. I wrote a. It's. It's. A, I call. It, it's just a resource. It's not like an article in a sense, but it's. It's more intended to be a resource to give a layperson tutorial on chartalism. But. But the primary purpose is to point you to expert sources. Awesome. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you know, I know nothing about Marx. I mean, clearly, I, I'm just beginning with that. But I'm really. I'm. I'm very interested in, you know, the the. I see a lot of critiques online and, and I actually was, I actually never really thought of Henwood as a Marxist. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but I've seen a lot of self-proclaimed Marxists like just rail against MMT and the state theory of money. And, you know, they, you know, the, Oh, they're okay. Keeping wars. So they're imperialist and all that stuff, you know, right. because we don't have to stop wars in order to do good. You don't have to stop good stuff. And you don't have to stop bad stuff in order to do good stuff. Right. We can do the good stuff now. And then when we're, you know, then when we're better and more able, more capable, more healthy, then we can turn around and crack our knuckles, you know, and then take care of the bad stuff, you know. So, so they take that. It, it doesn't seem. I'm, I'm guessing that that's not 
pure Marxism, I'm guessing. I mean, I, you know, I have no idea, but I just see a lot of those kinds of critiques and I have no idea how to respond to them. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's, I, I think a lot of it is like, you can be blamed on just the poor economics, like economic education that we have in this country. When people are like, oh, I, you know, how am I going to learn MMT? Like, I don't know anything about economics. And I'm like, you've already got a head up because you yeah. don't have to unlearn anything. Yeah. Um, and so like people will learn a little bit and they'll, they won't like, they'll, they will question whether it is good, but they don't question whether it is true. Hmm. Um, and I think I, that's, I just got, I just got something today. It can't be right because you know what, let me find it because it's yeah. just so perfect how this guy wrote it. Hold on. Um, yeah. He wrote, proponents of MMT believe that deficits mean a net investment into the economy by the government. This is wrong because it assumes that the government can allocate resources better than the private sector. This is a Marxist? I don't know if it's a Marxist or not, but that's just that's just a, a critique that I just got. Yeah. No, I got. I, I just happened to see some guy talking about this. Right. If that's true, then why did the USSR collapse? So what he's saying is that MMT can't be true because it's bad. Because right. if it were true, then it would be bad. And because it is bad, it can't be true. Right. And that has nothing to do with it. I was like, maybe it's bad. You you totally, you know, it's a valid point of view to say this is terrible. That doesn't make it any less of a reality. Right. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, I'm, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and it's like, it is, it depends on the situation. So like the situation in um, Empire of Cotton, like that is like very clearly an imperialist use of regulation to create to create a market and like that that's using the logic of mmt there like is a very like awful thing but if you look at cuba how does cuba like who's their trading partner like they don't have any benefactor in the world anymore they're 90 miles away from the united states and we're still like super hostile to them especially economically but how, so how do they manage to have food for everybody how do they manage to have like world-class healthcare and their healthcare system i mean they had a test for covid months before right um anybody right. else in the western hemisphere did because they also have two currencies as i understand it one is more for day-to-day -day transactions from people and then there's like a currency that the government uses. Um, and oh. I don't know exactly. It, it, I mean, there's instances of that um, in the United States too. If in the Berkshires, there's a local currency called the Berkshires. Um, and it's, I think it's like, it, you get, I think for every dollar when you get into it, I don't remember exactly how it works, but it's like almost completely pegged to the dollar, but it's helped create local trans, more local economic transactions because there's another Where, currency. You said Berksh Berkshires? Where is yeah, this? the Berkshires in um, Western Massachusetts. Oh, oh okay. Um, yeah, and the Berkshires is what it's called. Okay. Um, and the Schumacher Center is the economic group out there that spearheaded a lot of that. Huh, interesting. It reminds me of the unis. It reminds me of uh, you know the people from Money on the Left or some of them. You know, funding universities, and and it reminds me of the uh, the what's it called? The the uh, UMKC had the had their internal currency for mm -hmm. volunteering. Buckaroo, yep. buckaroo. 
Um, yeah. So, so this guy, you know, if you don't like this guy said MMT can't be correct because it's wrong, because it's a bad thing if it were correct. And it's like, if you don't like this system, you should change it. You know, like friends who say, I want to, I want to defeat, I want to, I want to eliminate capitalism. I want to destroy capitalism. Yeah, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but you're not going to defeat something if you don't know what it's like currently. If you don't truly, you're not going to, you can't defeat the beast if you don't understand its nature. Exactly. You know, so if you don't like it and therefore you deny the reality of how it is, good luck cha- trying to change it, you know. Right. Um, and uh, you, you also brought up, you know, Cuba does some good stuff, you know, food production and whatever. I think they provide health care. It's like, you know, I hear these complaints of even the poorest countries can provide all of their people with basic needs, health care, education, uh, food, housing. It may not be as razzle dazzle as the the most wealthy countries, but that doesn't stop them from being able to provide everything, every basic need, not luxury, but every basic need to prevent suffering for everyone. You know, and the fact that we don't do it here is just a reflection of people who have a lot, people who have people who have luxury are afraid of losing their luxury if the millions of desperate are given what they need. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, why don't we move on to your uh, to your UBI and your your zoning articles? Yeah. So, okay. uh, well, yeah, I think this I think is a good transition to the um, UBI. So, I had set out um, originally that was an assignment for school. So I was trying. I wanted to compare like the UBI, look at the UBI and the job guarantee to do some comparison and I wasn't what I found was that they're not necessarily they don't they're not opposed to each other
Today I talk with second-year MMT activist and graduate student Jane Ball. Jane earned an undergraduate minor in international economics at a conservative business school during the heart of the Iraq War and the first George W. Bush administration. Jane enjoyed the philosophy, theory, and history of economics, but strongly disliked the math and calculus. Because of the latter, they decided against pursuing an economics PhD. In early 2019, Jane discovered MMT in an episode of a podcast called Season of the Bitch. Jane then branched out to MMT podcast and Money on the Left, and into academic papers by Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton. Only then did Jane realize that it wasn't their understanding of mainstream economics and its math that was faulty or lacking, but the economics itself that made no sense. After describing their journey to MMT, Jane then talks about the flaws of Marxism, not as it actually is, but as it is popularly understood. Jane says this is primarily due to supporters inappropriately accepting and attempting to work around mainstream assumptions instead of rejecting them outright. An example is the flawed belief that at its heart money is a scarce commodity. This is despite Marx's own monetary theory of production, or MCM prime, which as I understand it, in turn implies chartalism and the state theory of money. The monetary theory of production and chartalism, which is supported by the overwhelming body of historical and anthropological evidence, is in direct contradiction to the ahistorical idea of barter, in which money is a commodity or a tangible and scarce thing. If money were indeed a commodity, then as Jane describes, it means that money is a purely economic phenomenon and is inherently separate from the political world and therefore outside of direct human control. All that said, I have studied little to no Marxism, so obviously don't listen to me. In part two, Jane and I discuss two of their academic style posts. The first documents studies that demonstrate the benefits of existing UBI-like programs, including the $5,000 a year paid to every Alaskan citizen by a fossil fuel company. The regular payment is clearly beneficial to its recipients, with the cruel irony being that the payments are made by companies which are viciously predatory to those very same recipients in the long run. The second is a fascinating post documenting how racist zoning has been official United States government policy starting soon after the Russian Revolution. These policies were a deliberate effort by government to prevent a similar kind of popular uprising. This was done primarily and essentially by dangling a nice home in the faces of white people and by keeping black and brown people out via redlining and discriminatory ordinances. So not only was this country built long ago on the backs and with the blood of black and brown people, that virulent racism continues today in active policy all around the country. A couple of notes before we get started. First, Jane is a voracious reader. Many of the books and authors they mentioned are listed in the show notes. Second, I mentioned how even the poorest countries can distribute their resources equally, I have since learned that there are many complications related to this, centering around the financial sovereignty of developing nations and how they are deliberately sabotaged and coerced by more powerful nations. I am still learning. 